listeners, uh, as uh, okay, there we go. As we said earlier, I my guest tonight on this weekend interview is Mr. Rinstar Luke. Rinstar is originally from Dominica of the Kalinago heritage. Uh, he currently resides in the United States of America. And he a pretty interesting story. Uh, he a lot of accomplishments, a lot of aspirations, and I hope that you agree with me. Um, that by the end of the hour that he spends with us, uh, we you will agree that uh, he's a perfect guest for this weekend interview. So let me say welcome, Rinsta, a very warm um, TDN radio and this weekend interview. Warm welcome to you. Hello, Anthony. Thank you very much for this interview. Hello to the listeners at TDN radio. Thank you very much for considering me as a guest on your TDN radio show. And I think you're absolutely correct in mentioning that as a Kalabango Indian and also a Dominican, that we all have very special stories to share. And I think it's very wonderful that we have someone who can recognize that there are many Dominicans, not only who live in Dominica, but around the world, who have many skills and talents and passions and who can help further develop our country to make it a better place to live. We don't necessarily have to live in Dominica, but with the exchange of ideas and the exchange of knowledge, that makes us a better citizens to understand our part in the world and how we can make the world come to us. Because after all, the world is not very large. It's a very small place. But I think, yes, I'm willing to share my knowledge and my particular interest is in aviation. I was born in the Kalanago territory, village of Silibia. Right. Unfortunately, I did not grow up in Silibia. I was adopted uh, at a very young age. I grew up in Pontcassé with my adopted mother, Christine Luke, and my adopted father, Matthew Luke. Matthew Luke. Is that Matthew Luke who used to do the incense and the fruit sales and so? Yes, that's famous. Yes, Mr. <laughs> Matthew Luke, incense man, as he's always known, going around by my love. He's your dad. Oh, oh Rinsta, I, I have to tell you, when I was when I was a young boy going to high school, I went to the Dominica Grammar School. I lived on King George Fifth Street, um, and um, your dad had uh, you know the Matthew Luke. He used, there was a guy next door to us. We used to sell a lot of fruits, and um, Matthew Luke used to frequent there. But I remember him around Roseau selling his incense, um, and you know, taking the opportunity to preach a message. So yeah, instant connection. I'm happy you brought a smile to my face when, <laughs> when you said Matthew Luke. It brought me back to my childhood. I mean, it's one of Dominica's very interesting people because he is a poet. He talks about love, he talks about, you know, communication, he also talks about being together, and I think growing up in Pocahontas, it was a very interesting cultural experience, because mm-hmm. uh, we were in a rainforest, we only had about maybe 10 neighbors, and besides selling his incense, uh, eventually he moved over to growing oyster mushrooms, so I grew up with my mother and father on our mushroom farm, because we were the only mushroom grower in Dominica, where we grew oyster mushroom, which is a delicacy that we sold to hotels and to restaurants. Uh, so this is a very unique crop, which is not traditionally farmed commercially in Dominica. 
a man well ahead of his time and, and an entrepreneur by, by all means. Um, he was the one that really introduced this burning incense um, on a stick in, into Dominica. And um, very well. Um, Matthew Luke. So interesting, interesting um, childhood. So, so you're born in Salibia. You grew up um, in Pancasse. Pancasse is um, on the way to to Roseau from the village where I'm from as well. And um, but currently, currently you live in the United States. I understand you live in Washington D.C. So let's get our guest introduced um, introduced to you. Um, what you do right now and the person that you are, and then we're going to walk it back. Um, to to reveal, you know, your very interesting um, path, I should say that you've taken from from Pocasse in Dominica to where you are right now. Well, really, honestly, it's been an amazing last five years, going on to six years. I've been working as a teacher assistant, a care professional, as we're also known, education aide. So I work with a classroom of fifteen students, which is pre K three, which is pre kindergarten, preschool, mm-hmm. three-year-olds, and four-year-olds. And so it's a very unique experience to work with children because I think you know, I was very fortunate to have many opportunities be given to me by family, friends, and investors who invest in my education. But I also feel that I have to give something back to the community. And I was very fortunate to be recruited to work for the D.C. public school system. So I'm going on to my fifth year. And it's really a fun, exciting, every day is a new day. There's always challenges. Um, But I think working with children changes your perspective in life because you have an optimism that tomorrow is going to be always be a better day and there is so much potential in children. And just I was fortunate to have a wonderful, caring, loving family that encouraged me to pursue my passions and also had great teachers through my school in Dominica that also helped me, encourage me to push the obstacles and challenge yourself. And I think it's just also very fitting to be a part of the educational system. Yes, and I mean, that, that seems to keep in the whole theme of, of your people. Um, that, that idea of community and giving back is, is something that, in my mind, I associate very much with... Um, with the Kalinago people, I remember as a young boy, um, growing up in Casabras, we used to do cassava, and um, you know the Kalinago people are known for cassava growing. And I remember um, sometimes on our fa- on our little garden where we have cassava, some Kalinago people would walk by and give my mom advice, and you know, uh, is a very ori- um, f- um, community oriented. So I'm not surprised. That um, that you you fall naturally um, into that. Uh, also, um, I, I know everybody who, who who's familiar with your story is familiar with the fact that you you're passionate about aviation. Um, I, and so, tell us a little bit about your accomplishments in aviation. I know you have your some some licenses. You're your pilot and that kind of thing. So, talk us talks a little bit about that kind of your education um, process around becoming uh, a qualified and licensed pilot. Well, my journey actually began very long, long time ago. As I was actually as a child, and I think I was always fascinated by moving objects, whether it was you know, trucks, I always loved big dump trucks, I always loved things that move, airplanes, 
And when I was two years old, I had my first airplane ride, and that's really where that passion grew. And then everybody decided to give me toys. So the toys, they gave me toy airplanes, and they also gave me Legos. So Legos are a lot of construction blocks, and you can build together different shapes, objects, some of wheels, and some of them were airplane kits, and I got to build airplane kits. And I also got model airplanes, so that really started the passion. And during the early 1990s, uh, of course, I was my parents were always very good at networking, so they always got to meet different people, and that's where I got to learn the skills of networking myself, both that my mom and my dad were always, of course, because of our family-owned business at the mushroom farm, and of course, they would go to the port to sell uh, to tourists their souvenirs, so that's always that being able to communicate for yourself became natural. And, of course, I was very fortunate we had friends who were pilots. And my first time of actually being in the cockpit was flying from on a small seven-seater twin-engine airplane called Cessna 421 and flew from Cainfield to San Juan and San Juan, Percy Caicos, and then to Florida all in one day, which is a long way. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, you know, it's not have an international airport. But that was my first experience of being in a small airplane, being in the cockpit, and then actually handling the controls of the airplane, that was you let me, you touch, like, you let oh, you touch wow, the controls, man. eh? <laughs> wow. You got to touch the controls. Mm. And that was great. I mean, that's how I had developed the pilot friendships. And then, of course, whenever they would fly into Dominica from Florida, because they used to have an airplane that used to work for an offshore bank, so they would fly around the Caribbean, and I got to go up whenever they were flying and just got to be part of the cockpit crew and got to learn about the airplane, how it works, and then I was given magazines, so that kind of created this experience of, wow, you know, that this is an airplane, mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. touched the controls, I know, now it began self-taught in terms of reading and researching about airplanes, how they fly, what does the cockpit look like, how do you interpret instruments from a cockpit, and that's really what started my interest in aviation, and of very fortunately, my mother and my father are vegetarians, so one day my mother bumped to Daniel, who was at this restaurant, because they're both vegetarians, and she started talking to him about, uh, you know, life and saying that she had a son who was interested in aviation. And I first met Daniel in 1998, and of course at that time he had a little two-seater plane, and one day after school... I got picked up, and we went to the airport, came to the airport, flew around Dominica a little bit, and that was my first time I met Daniel, and he became an aviation mentor and a great close friend, confidant, in helping me pursue so, so, the since you Since you've mentioned Daniel twice on Ridster, without, without interrupting you, give a little background on who Daniel is or was. Daniel Renstrom is a very unique uh, personality. Uh, he is a former Swedish Air Force mechanic who went to Africa, which was Ethiopia, and he flew for the Ethiopian Air Force, and he worked also as a mechanic for the Ethiopian Air Force. He also got to meet Haile Selassie, and also he flew for the King of Yemen. And he stayed in Africa and Middle East. He flew around. Uh, he flew one of the most early parts of the airline industry, which was a Douglas DC-3, which is a twin-engine 
propeller plane, and which is very famous around the world in the aviation industry as being the first airplane that was actually built for commercial airlines right. to mm-hmm. be successful. And eventually he left Africa and moved to Europe, and then he started flying Boeing 707s, uh, which are four-inch jetliners across Europe. And eventually decided to retire to the Caribbean island, and he moved to Cochrane, and he lived in a little house on the hilltop of Cochrane. And so I met him, and we started talking, and they said, you know what, I want to build an airplane, and I want you to help me build an airplane. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, it's always interesting, you know, when it comes to communication. I think a lot of young people have to be able to communicate their wants and their needs and develop positive relationships with adults. And I didn't expect I would help to build an airplane, Dominique, of all the places. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the opportunity came, and I, that was my project for about three and a half years, which was an amazing project to work on. You know, they say there's a saying, old Chinese saying, so I'll paraphrase that says, um, you know, prepare yourself because when the when the student is ready, a, a teacher will show up, and um, if that is not a, a prime. You know, example of that, illustration of that. There, there's, there's not a second one. You, you, you met all these pilots. You, you became interested. You, every chance you got, you, because because people knew you were enthusiastic, they gave you planes as toys. You got plane kits. You read um, magazines, and boom, somebody shows up in your life who is an experienced pilot, super experienced, and who's interested in building an airline. A plane, I mean, a plane, and you—you you are the one that gets the opportunity to work on that project with him. So let's talk a little bit about how you know it unfolded. How just just walk us through. It's interesting enough. Just walk us a step as detailed as you can remember of that project, um, building a, a, an airplane on Cochrane. By the way, is a village in the mountains of Dominica. Um, it, I don't know if there's enough straight a straight line. Um, long enough to to do anything um, plane related, you know. So let's talk about that. Some. Well, Daniel decided that he wanted to build an airplane, Dominica, and of course I was very excited, very enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. So of course the first thing, the type of airplane that he was building is known as experimental. So an experimental aircraft, it comes as a kit, and so therefore you're allowed to make modifications. For example, put a more powerful engine, and you can make changes to design as you would like. Whereas factory-built aircraft just come from the factory as they are, and you pretty much have to accept it as it mm-hmm. comes. Right. And so the first time that was, we had to all go down to the port, the good old port of Dominica, and of course it was very exciting. So of course, the customs officers were kind of interested, you know, like. Oh, what is this? So those parts of an airplane. You're building a plane, and that was kind of a mystified look. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're building an airplane, and yes, we had to put everything in the back of our pickup truck, and we had a few other friends who helped transport it all the way from the port, uh, which is the Woodbridge Bay port, and drive it all the way up to Cochrane, which took a while. Uh, of course, you know, the road up to Cochrane is very narrow, very winding. And we eventually get it to Daniel's 
garage, because Daniel's house was a two-story house, so the bottom part of the house was just an open garage, and of course, Daniel had this old French Citroën car, which, it's a very classic car, it's very golden dolly, <laughs> and so of course, that was his mode of transportation to and from around the island, but of course, getting everything into the garage, unpacking it, that was kind of the most labor-intensive task of kind of organizing and packing. And then we decided to, okay, we're going to start with the fuselage. The fuselage is the body of the aircraft. So, of course, I had to learn new techniques like riveting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, riveting is what's commonly used in aircraft construction. For example, what a rivet is, basically a few pieces of metal. Is a rivet is almost like a nail, but the end of it is actually flat. Right. So you get a rivet gun, you're pressing against it, applying pressure, and then you are on the inside, you're pretty much pressing against the rivet to flatten it to prevent any defects, and you're checking looking for defects. Mm -hmm. And that's how pretty much we started the fuselage. And that was, took a while, so it took several months. It didn't happen overnight. Uh, of course, there was always trial and error, and this is, I think it's a great learning process, a great learning curve, because there's nothing ever goes as planned. Um, for example, the time that we had hoped it would be finished took longer. Uh, there were also challenges, the financial challenges. Building airplane is very expensive, and of course, we are in Dominica, so there's no international airport. Everything has to be shipped in, so you're depending on the ship to arrive, depending on the port to customs, and right. then the duty is on it. So that all adds to your time factor. And there's there's less room for error because if you spoil, if you damage one part or you misuse it, you have to reorder it and wait for it to come. <laughs> or, you know, I, you know what that is. Um, increasing challenges. I mean, if 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 building that that air that airplane in Miami or New York is a challenge, I'm sure it is. I think building it in Dominica probably quadruples that challenge and then building it in Cochrane, which is not the easiest, most accessible um, part of Dominica, probably increases difficulty tenfold. And and so I imagine it was uh, painstaking and, and paying a lot of attention to details, right? It took a lot of details, a lot of, certainly a lot of patience. Mm -hmm. uh, there were moments where pretty much you just had to realize that your set deadline that you set because you're trying to get the fuselage, you're trying to get the wings, and of course, we didn't have an engine, uh, so we had bought an engine off an old crashed Bonanza aircraft, which had crashed at Keyfield many years ago, but Daniel had the experience of being an aircraft mechanic would fix the engine, so that's when he chose to put a more powerful engine. Oh. So the airplane is a tailwheel airplane. So most airplanes now, if you look at modern airplanes, they're a tricycle. So you have two main wheels and nose wheels. But mm -hmm. well, our airplane was a, known as a tailwheel. So you have two main wheels and you have one little wheel at the tail. And that's kind of where the pilot sits up. That's kind of at a slanted angle. Mm -hmm. uh, because you put a heavier engine, you have to compensate. Everything in aviation is weight and balance. So if you put something really heavy, or heavier than what is specified, then you have to compensate by adding weight at the back and you have to make some calculations. So that also took some more time. It took about 3,000 man hours for us to put on the engine, 
correct it and of course make modifications because it was a much more powerful engine then had to overall the engine take out the cylinders take out the parts so it took a lot more time than we had anticipated but I think part of these lessons that you learned is that you have to be resilient you don't give up you have to try again when you fail mm-hmm, mm-hmm. these are lessons that you do take with you further in life but I think when you look at building an airplane in Dominica, it's a unique experience because it's something that never could be imagined. And I think what we've shown, particularly in Dominica, that we do have the capability. And if we do have the will, we can manufacture something large scale as right. an airplane in Dominica. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's interesting that you say that because... Uh, Yes, you had the experience of building the aircraft with Daniel. You you also mentioned earlier that you like to give back, which means that the lessons that you learn in the process um, is not just from the satisfaction of having a, a product at the end, but also now the experience that you gain, you have to be able to pass it on. And it's very interesting that you say that um, it proves that we in in Dominica, in a small island like Dominica, in a remote place like Dominica, remote I mean in terms of access to technology and so on, we don't have to limit ourselves by those circumstances because if two if two men, a, a young boy and an, and an older retired gentleman, can build an aircraft in the heights of Cochrane in Dominica, what can we accomplish as a people? And and I like the the idea that you that you that you bring that up. So let's fast forward a little bit. Um, you had all these challenges, but finally you got you got to the point where Daniel could say, "Okay, voila, here is the LA, the aircraft." What was it like standing back and watching and watching the um, the product of the of those many years of of toil and labor? Well, to be quite honest, I think it was. And a very exciting, very thrilling, and kind of an emotional experience to, because the first time that we actually had rolled out the aircraft from the hangar, it was just a fuselage. Mm-hmm. Then we had to attach the wings, and then we attached the vertical stabilizer, the horizontal stabilizer, because we couldn't attach the wings inside the garage. Right. Well, in his garage, it's very, it's very small. It's yeah. not something that's very wide. Mm-hmm. So by when you bring it out the first time and we had invited friends and I think we invited the parliamentary representative from Cochrane at that time and to come and see what the work that we had put in all this time, it was very rewarding and I think a lot of our family and friends were very surprised from especially the ones who were there on the original day that we picked up the boxes the crates at Woodbridge Bay and mm-hmm. brought it up to Cochrane, and we're like, wow, this is a finished product. <laughs> and I think the first time we tried to start the engine, didn't work, and then we tried again, and it started. But the first engine start that we had was successful was in this yard with everybody clapping. And wow. <laughs> of course, the first time it didn't work, where started people started clapping, saying, go, Daniel, go. And of course, he started again, mm-hmm. started mm-hmm. the mission, and it worked. And finding it just roared to life, and there was smoke. But it was just a sense of satisfaction that we have done something. We've proven 
that we could do this project and overcame so many obstacles. And that was the really fun, exciting part was seeing all the faces and seeing all the the family and friends. Congratulations. I think that was really the true moment that we kind of said, wow, this looks like an airplane. Whereas before (laughs) it looked kind of, didn't look like an airplane, but parts of an airplane, but wasn't fully attached. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And during this process, we were able to be filmed by a German documentary crew, uh, which created this documentary celebration of flight, which starts from close to the beginning, our project took three and a half years. So they got to capture it on film, which I invite everyone to go on YouTube and it's free. It's about an hour long in four different parts. It's called Celebration of Flight. And you just type it in mm-hmm. and you can see the whole process. And I think it's great that we have this footage on camera for generations to come because we've created aviation history in Dominique. And we've shown that you can, whatever you imagine, whatever your goal is, whatever your dream is, if you chase it, you want it bad enough. You can create something despite the fact that we think that Dominique's a very small island, very limited resources. Um, and I think that's something positive we take away from that experience. Certainly, the listeners, you, you can go and, and find, I'll, I'll post a link on, on tdnradio.net on this week in interview page as well. Um, you can find Celebration of Flight, and, and it's a documentary on um, the, the, the building, the production of an of a aircraft in the heights, oh, in the heights of Dominica um, by, by Rinster Luke and um, Daniel. Uh, Daniel is Swedish. What, how do you say his last name? Daniel Runstrom. Runstrom. Okay, so if you if you joined me late, uh, my guest tonight on this weekend interview is Mr. Rinstar Luke. Rinstar is originally from Dominica. He's of um, Kalinago heritage, and um, very interesting story. Um, he he was very passionate, always passionate. He is very passionate about flying and aviation and all of that, and. Um, when he was a young boy, I think 13 years old or so, he he became the protege, if you want to call it that, or, or the apprentice of, of a Swedish airline pi- uh, aircraft pilot and mechanic. And they built this aircraft in the heights of Dominica. If anybody who's been to Dominica and know how mountainous Dominica is um, would, would, would open their eyes in amazement to say you build an aircraft in Cochrane. Why? <laughs> um but you know, um, Rinster said something very interesting because you know he's the the Kalinago people are known for their vessel building, their transportation. Uh, they, they they we learn in, in our history how they build their own canoes from from trees. They dug canoes out of trees, and with those canoes, they were able to populate and explore um, from South America. Um, all the way up north and, and, and um, populate the entire archipelago of, um, archipelago of, 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 of islands that now make up the, the Caribbean. So, Rinster, when I'm listening to you, I'm connecting that back to, you know, it's another form of transportation. Uh, you know, it's keeping, it's keeping in the heritage of the, of the Kalinago people. So that's why I, I want to... I want to talk about your people for a minute, um, or for longer than a minute. I, I want us to spend a little time and talk about 
the Kalinago people as being the the first the original inhabitants of 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 Dominica of the Caribbean in, in our modern times um the position they hold in community and so on um what does what does your your Kalinago heritage mean to you if i can if i can start the conversation by asking you that that's an excellent question uh, in my case i didn't grow up in the Kalinago territory but i do have family friends and i also have very close family my mother my father my brothers and sister live in the Kalinago territory so i do visit uh, when I do go back home to Dominica. And in terms of what it means to be Kalanago, I think it's very unique uh, because a lot of people always try to identify themselves as who we are or where we come from. And I think, for me personally, I think that's certainly an honor and a privilege, and there is a lot of pride in being a very unique person. But I also think that there are many challenges for those who live in the Catalanago territory. I think when I have traveled the world, I'm very blessed and very fortunate to have traveled around the world different parts, and I do see that there's a lot of potential economically uh, to develop that, because I think we have you know, poverty, we have inequality that exists there. Um, and I, unfortunately, I think we've not invested a lot of funds and or transfer knowledge of skills and talent into to give Kalanago people a best future for generations to come. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is one of the main issues for Kalanago uh, people is, of course, the issue of the lack of land titles, which has an effect of being unable to go to the bank and get a loan to, let's say, build a guest house or to start a business. Uh, those issues of lack of ability to finance your own dreams and your own aspirations, I think that hinders development. And I think that there's a lot of potential in the Kalanago territory to develop not only tourism, but to create jobs. I think we have many resorts and we have many hotels operating Dominica, but we don't have one in the Kalanago territory. We have a call center in Dominica. I work at Clare Harbor Call Center. So I know what it's like working a call center. We should at least open a call center in the Kalanago territory right. and train young men and train young women in customer service because that is very key, creating them customer service because that's a skill that they can take anywhere in the Caribbean or throughout the world and use that and get themselves a job to enhance their life and their family's lives. And, and it's important that you talk about the economics because I remember, um, you know, Dominica is, is a, is, it has predominantly two, two heritage, basically, African and, and Kalinago. And African people of African heritage uh, in the 70s, uh, started getting title to their land, 70s and 80s, when some of the bigger estates um, that were owned by the colonists started breaking up and, and people started owning land. And even um, in the mountains, people would occupy plots of land that used to be called Krong land, and, and eventually they would get it surveyed and the government did a program to to sell the land to these people. Uh, 
and we see the difference even if there's a long way to go they see the difference because now people could send their children to school you could go to the aid bank and take a loan and send your child who has the ability to university you you could buy a vehicle you could improve your farm you could do a road on your farm so that it becomes easier life becomes easier and so you would think that because the 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 political class the political ruling class in dominica because they've had that experience in their not too distant past um they should be a little bit more sympathetic and empathetic um to the impact that that has on the development of a people and therefore be more i always say it, attentive to to that challenge and and try to offer up solutions so hopefully as we talk about it more you know the appropriate authorities will hear and 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 people um who have the resources and the ability would become more interested in finding solutions that will help the Kalinago people to be able to um you know be able to paddle their own canoe if you want to speak of it that way which is which is which is uh, you know right in keeping with, with the Kalinago people so that they can improve their circumstances economically but but I'm sure that they're very proud of you and the other people um like you who have gone out and have proven that um you know that beginning is not is not a disadvantage in terms of achieving it's actually an advantage i think in the kalamago of the future there is a lot of potential mm-hmm. and it takes a lot of education to ensure people understand that they can create new opportunities for employment for themselves because i think right now we have just one tourism attraction the brana would say which is kind of village by the sea which is good it's positive but what do you do after when there's no cruise ship like for example a call center or hotel would be more viable i think in that it would have greater economic impact because you're hiring local people you're training young telemaco men and women to work i think that is really the key is to train young men and women and not only train them but show them the best in terms of customer service mm-hmm, i think in mm-hmm. dominica one of the challenges is also having great customer service and i've worked in the customer service industry so i understand the needs and the want of people who expect very good customer service and i think we have to train ourselves to deliver and that sets a positive image for people to want to come back and want to invest further into dominica and also the kalamago territory Uh, certainly the, the the fact that we have this this folks were the original inhabitants of the region is an asset is a resource that uh, that the country has not been able to to take advantage of because of the neglect that they've negle- that that the that the people themselves have experienced so we so we hope that changes very soon so but 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 let's come back to your your aviation passion let's talk about the, the your schooling um because after oh no no before we talk about your schooling let's continue the story about the aircraft because after you build the aircraft you ha- you and daniel had to take it to um florida um on display at an aviation um exhibition expo sort of right yes i think for us the main goal was to get the aircraft completed and also to get it 
uh, to Florida because in 2003 was a very important year for aviation because that was celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Wright Brothers oh. powered flight. Okay. And so that was a very big deal within the aviation community. So a lot of the aviation air shows, uh, particularly uh, this one I went to, which is called Sun and Fun of Florida, which is held every year in April. Uh, it's held by an organization called Experimental Aircraft Association. And this particular air show has many people who create home-built aircraft. So mm-hmm. they build aircraft in their garages. These, these are people who may restore World War II bombers, World War One aircraft. And then, you, of course, you have the few commercial aircraft developers that would come and display their new aircraft, the new technology. So it's kind of a trade expo. Mm-hmm. Um, so we wanted to be a participant in that. So that was held in Lakeland, Florida. So, of course, that was the set goal. We were pretty much ready to go. And once we had taken the aircraft out, displayed it to everybody, then, of course, the next challenge was, of course, taking the wings off, start packing it, and shipping it. <laughs> and luckily, we had many wonderful friends in the community of Cochrane because without them, I don't think the part of getting it from Daniel's house to Woodbridge Bay Port would have been possible. Because you didn't have a crane, right? You didn't have a crane. You didn't have. <laughs> we didn't have anything. anything we pretty right. much had to just use human manpower, and we're so grateful to the community of Cochrane because they really came and stepped in and helped whatever way they could, whether it was, you know, driving the Land Rover and, of course, whether it was giving a helping hand, packing everything, and, of course, getting it into the container. And, of course, the road to Dominico is a challenge. I mean, it's a roller coaster road going from Cochrane down Mm -hmm. to Woodbridge Bay, but we had, like, a convoy of several cars. And if you definitely look at the film, you will definitely see the images of me and Daniel and, and all the villagers of Cochrane coming out and supporting this because they felt it was part of their project. And that was really one thing I loved about being part of this project was that it was not just me and Daniel, even though people make it out to be as me and Daniel, it was also the community of Cochrane because they also helped. When I couldn't be there, villagers would come to help Daniel. They always did their part in trying to help the project become a reality because they took ownership of it. And that was really fantastic. I was really happy with that. Yeah, it was it was a community project. I I saw I, I saw you said that in 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 the um in one of the interviews, and I said yeah, because that is how isn't that the Dominica that we remember? Um, when you that's the Dominica I certainly remember. When the one person has a project, everybody comes together and does that project with them with the same enthusiasm and vigor as if it was their own project. Because guess what? Next week is somebody else's project and everybody responds the same way. Uh, and so, every, you know, when we grew up, our parents built their own house. You know? And so, the village men would come together and get the trees from the forest and cut the lumber and, and you know, come together and do that. When there was, uh, uh, somebody is going to get a new plot of land to farm. Everybody would come together and help them fell the trees and and to and to and to get that farm going. And so that kind of um Dominican um, togetherness and cooperation uh, is what I imagine you talk about when you when you talk about the project being 
a village of Cochrane project, not just a, a Rinster and Daniels project, right? That is correct. I think the, the sentiments of the people, they were very enthusiastic, and especially when we had to transport the aircraft um, on a trailer, on a Land Rover, catch a Land Rover down to Woodbridge Base, everybody pretty much as we're trying to the community were waving, they were you know, it's a bittersweet moment, I think, for them, because they, they were happy that the airplane was finished and completed, but there was also a moment of sadness at, you know, kind of the end of the project. <laughs> yeah. But I think without, you know, everybody was very helpful. They got to the container port, and then, of course, fitting it into the ship, a container to be shipped on by tropical shipping was, took a while, but uh, we eventually got it into the container and made sure that there was not going to be any damage to the aircraft, fuselage, because once we take everything off, everything has to be within a narrow container, make sure it's padded, make sure it's protected. And then it was, you know, that was the end of the project once we shipped it off. And then the next stage was Daniel went to Lakeland, Florida, and to begin the process of building the aircraft again. Reassembling it, right? <laughs> from the container. Mm-hmm. And, of course, beginning the process to get the aircraft shown at this expo because we had our aircraft displayed there right and and i got to fly up to be part of the air show and got to experience what that's almost like airplane heaven it's a lot of noise a lot of people but of course you get to meet people network and how old were you at, how old were you at that time i'm sorry how old what was your age at that time how old were you um 2003 so i think it was Probably like 15, 16. Wow. <laughs> I can imagine. I, can. Well, I, I, I ask you that because you describe it as airplane heaven. It was. It was, you know, just very loud noise, different types of airplanes, and just fascination. And then you could pretty much go through the history of airplanes because you're seeing models from World War One, World War Two, all the way up to the 50s and 60s, all the way up to modern times mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. So this is almost like the history of airplanes. You could see the progress in terms of design technology and it was a fascinating show because we got to see some historical aircraft for example what Dan used to fly in Africa which is a twin engine what called Douglas DC-3 which was really the airplane which kind of changed the aviation industry by making airlines profitable it was actually built for carrying people very sturdy very robust and so here it was Kind of a very special to go up in the DC-3 and reminisce about what it was like when he was flying in Africa. So we got to find one that was displayed. He got to sit inside, and so that was nice to hear from him his experiences. And that was, I think, for him just being an old DC-3 um, compared to what's now modern airplanes, completely worldly different. There was no luxuries. It's all no computers at all. Just round dials and gauges. Wow. Uh, that's fantastic the history for sure and then of course I stayed for a few days at the air show and then the air show ended and I had to travel back to Dominica because I was attending the Goodwill Secondary School at the time so I had to finish graduation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Daniel stayed in Lakeland, Florida and pretty much after the air show ended he pretty much had a hangar where he had the airplane and began to get it ready for flight testing and so that was the very big moment for him to go by himself for the very first time and fly his very own creation. Wow. 
And I think that was a very happy moment for him because he kind of realized that this was the very end of his aviation legacy at 78 to be decided to build an airplane, which is a three-and-a-half-year project, and being able to fly the airplane for the first time, feel the controls, say, okay, this is my baby. I invested time, energy, and effort into it, passion. Now I'm seeing the finished product. So he, so he actually he got to fly the plane um, in Florida after the air show? Uh, I did not. I had to return to Dominica. No, you're done, you're done, you're done, you okay. Mm-hmm. And he pretty much got his aircraft inspected by the FAA and certified. So he was able to register it. And then he decided at that time it was time to retire from aviation and decided to sell the aircraft to a new owner. So the aircraft is still flying within the United States. It has changed owners over the time, but it's still flying around, and whoever is flying it is having a great time with it. He's still flying. Wow. (laughs) Wouldn't it be an interesting project if we get that plane back to Dominica? And eventually, when it retires, retire it into a museum in Cochrane. <laughs> that would be a com- that would that would make a complete cycle, eh? Although although the idea of flight is freedom, so so even if it doesn't come back to Dominica, just the idea that it's out there flying and giving people somebody pleasure is probably what he dreamt of. I I think for Daniel, it was more of a deep passion to build his own airplane because. He flew airplanes for a while as an airline pilot, flew in Africa, flew in Europe, and he wanted, that was his last project, he wanted to build an airplane. And I think that was also a test of his skills, his talent, his patience, because mm-hmm. it took a long time to build an airplane. And I think the fact that it's still flying is really a testament to definitely teamwork, you know, working together, and also making sure that the airplane is safe, and of course, Whoever's enjoying it is happy enjoying it because the airplane is a, what is known as an experimental. So it's a two-seater. Uh, it's got an experimental aircraft marking. So it doesn't mean you cannot fly for commercial hire. Mm-hmm, right. The person who owns it is just a private owner. Right. It's fully aerobatic. So you can go and fly around, do some loops and some full of really fun aerobatic stuff. So it's certified for that. It was meant for that type of design. It can withstand the G's uh, for that particular purpose so so when you think about it you think about well you know i some of those rivets right there i was the one who put those rivets in and they're still holding up right (laughs) Uh, that's very true i mean when you look at you sit back and you think wow this is what we've accomplished we've built an airplane and you've seen it fly and of course you've seen the video footage of it taking off for the first time you're like wow yeah i that's something that i built like basically did these rivets. I remembered which ones were not perfect and we had to drill them out and put a new rivet in and replace it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, there, there are some, you know, I think that's the, the fun part of building. It's a lot of trial and error. I mean, there's a manual to build an airplane, but there's no manual to teach you. There's, there's all trial and error. So you're trying, okay, this can work and this can't work. So you have to be adaptable, very flexible. Right, right. So, so is it? How does it work um, in terms of um, airline registry? If you want, if you wanted to find out who the current owners are of that particular aircraft, is it possible, like, to search public records and see, okay, this person owned it and they sold it to that person? Is there sort of like a chain of ownership like that? 
Well, fortunately, I have checked recently for the aircraft, because I do occasionally check this to see. So before it was registered as November 257 Delta Romeo, which stood for Daniel and Runstrom or Daniel Rainstar, the two last letters. So the registration has changed, so it's with a new current owner. Uh, all aviation records in terms of regist- aircraft registry are public knowledge, because you can go to FAA database and you can type in the registration number, and that will tell you who the current register is. As with most aircraft, for tax reasons, sometimes you may have people who own the airplane privately, but you'll never see their name. Mm-hmm, so right. they register the aircraft to a limited liability company. So right, right, right. Have a li- limited liability company registered in a certain state. So if you want to make contact, you can easily mail them a letter and say, hey, you know, I would like to make contact with you if that's okay, come to the airplane or go fly in it. So I have not had that because one, that I just don't have the time at the moment. Mm-hmm, My mm-hmm. focus is on work and of course that takes some time and energy. But uh, yeah, I do keep track of the airplane. I know that it's still flying up there and whoever's enjoying flying it is having a really great time doing all the aerobatic flights and sharing part of that legacy that's continuing on. Certainly. So let's talk about U.S. As we, as we come to the towards the end of it, let's talk about you and and where you are in terms of your aviation um, accomplishments and and aspirations. What you know your different um, you know qualifications as a pilot and so on. Well, I basically started uh, college in South Florida in August two thousand four, and then eventually transferred to Canada. And I attended First Nations Technical Institute, which is a very unique college because it's run by the Mohawk Indians of mm-hmm. the Tiny Nago Mohawk Reservation, which is on the Bay of Quinte. It's about three hours east of Toronto on the 401. And so their curriculum is pretty much approved by the Ministry of Education in Canada. So they are a First Nation Technical Institute. Mm-hmm. What that means is they offer discounted tuition for people who are quote unquote Native American or First Nations. Right. And their students are pretty much from all over Canada. So all the different tribes send their students if they choose to apply to that college can go there. So I was the first international student representing the Canada Indian tribe and Dominica. Right. So I was in Canada from August two thousand eight until June 2010. So during that time, I got my private pilot license, which is the first license that you get as a pilot to just fly privately, not for hire. Mm-hmm. And then the next license that I obtained was my commercial pilot license, which allows me to fly for hire. And then, of course, I got my instrument rating, which allows me to fly into instrument meteorological conditions. Because in flying, we have two different types of flying. We have VFR, which is visual flight worlds, where you're flying an airplane and you're looking outside Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. at references, and you have instrument conditions, which, for example, would be, for example, fog or rain or mist or snow, anything that reduces your ability to see. So you're flying completely dependent on your instrument, so that takes another qualification. So I have Uh uh, three qualifications. And in addition, I have a multi-engine rating. What that allows me to do is fly an airplane with more than one engine. So 
So my total time of flying as a pilot has been over 500 hours of flight time. Of flight time, okay. In order, in order to fly uh, for airlines, you need at least now over 1,000 hours of flight time experience. So they're still, I'm halfway there, 50%. So is that is that um, is that your ultimate goal to be an airline um, an airline pilot? That is the ultimate goal. That is the ultimate goal. Uh, flying is one of the greatest passions to have, but it's also very costly, expensive. Um, for example, to fly in a single engine Cessna 172, which is a typical trainer, whether it's to fly with an instructor or you fly by yourself to build your flight time, will cost you anywhere between. $200 to $250 per flight hour, which is very wow. costly. Wow, yes. And yes. it all adds up. Mm-hmm. So whenever I look for opportunities, I fly or I may fly with a friend and we may split the cost and I'll fly for one leg and then the person will fly the other leg. That's the way to reduce the cost because aviation is very fun, but it's also very costly. Very, very expensive, right. right. Um, and so that's the only challenge there with the, the financial aspect but yeah I mean it's been really great opportunities have come my way once I left Canada I came back to the United States I became a flight attendant I did that for one year so I got to see the, how airlines operate how pilots and flight crews operate together and then eventually went to education and then the most exciting for me was in April 2016, I got to be part of the International Air Rally, which was a group of over 30 airplanes, and we got to fly together as a group that that was sponsored, mm-hmm. and myself, by Bombardier Airspace, which is one of Canada's largest airplane manufacturers. And also, I had the honor of flying and meeting the Haitian's first female pilot. So they were a group of 30 airplanes and very small private airplanes, and we would fly, for example, from Fort Lauderdale to Turks and Caicos, Turks and Caicos, down to St. Croix, St. Croix, Martinique, Martinique, Antigua, Antigua, Tortola, and then, of course, to Haiti, um, then finally back to Florida. So it was two weeks around the Caribbean flying as a pilot, and that was a fantastic experience. Too, have, you, have you ever flown into Dominica? I've flown to Dominica uh, with family and friends who used to have a twin-engine Cessna 421. So I've been in the cockpit of landing in Melbourne Hall. I've been in the cockpit of landing in Teamfield. Mm-hmm. It's a fun experience. It's one of those uh, very... They have to be alert all the time. You cannot... There's no time for complacency. There's always alert. You're looking at... Because of the terrain in Dominica... Uh, you're watching to make sure that your proper altitude, proper airspeed, and, of course, because of the shortness of the runways, that you're making sure that you're able to make the first third of the runway, which is preferable, what most pilots aim for. So, yes, it's w- a fun experience. Do you know, what was the length of the runway at Melvin Hall? I'm sorry? Do you know the length of the runway at Melvin Hall in Dominica? Landing in Melvin Hall, it, it definitely takes some... Some skills, right? But it's not, when we think of Dominica, it's not the most challenging airport in the world. There are far more challenging airports around the world Mm -hmm. that really require a lot of skill, a lot of attention. But I think with Dominica's airports, they're very, very unique. But when you think of 
airports like, for example, St. Bart's or Seba, where you don't have any room for error. Uh, therefore, you have to be the best of the best and be able to practice and be able to be very confident in your skills and know what your limits are and know when not to attempt an approach or when to abort a landing. All right. So, so I see that you, you write some articles, you post some articles online about the International Airport. Um, I... I'm in my 50s right now, and uh, from ever since I know myself, there's always been a discussion about Dominica having an international airport. Um, I see you post um, certain, um, more from a technical expert point of view. So is that one of the things that you're looking forward to, seeing Dominica um, have an international airport that can, that can accommodate jet landings and so on? I strongly believe that Dominica has a lot of potential in tourism, especially for ecotourism. And I think an international airport definitely would be bringing the country to the 21st century. From my own personal experiences with family and friends, traveling to and from Dominica is always a challenge, frustration, and of course, sometimes very costly. And I think that with an international airport, it brings in a lot of new opportunities. It is an expensive venture. It's not very cheap. But long-term, I think when you look at the rest of the Caribbean, Dominica is in a situation where we're trying to play catch-up with everyone else because everyone else has invested heavily in aviation infrastructure for a new international airport. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where our challenge is, is to be able to, one, get passengers to and from United States, Europe, within one day in an affordable manner, and two, lower the cost and have competition. And I think it's a very unfortunate that we do not have a lot of airline competition. So, therefore, the airfares are going to be quite expensive. Right. Um, I think when we look at the technical aspects, we have heard many promises. It's like every election cycle, every five years. It's almost that we hear the two very best friends, election cycle and international airport, are very close, <laughs> and, together, and right? hear the same <laughs> promises. But in terms of action, it's very hard to read into the mindset of the politicians and their decision-making abilities. And that is also an issue of credibility for airlines because just because you say that you're going to build an international airport does not mean airlines are automatically going to fly to your destination. Mm -hmm. They're looking for facts and figures. You're looking for certain things that their confidence level and ability to serve your country or to serve your airport is going to be either profitable or sustainable long-term. Uh, in terms of offering incentives, what can we offer them? And I think international airport is one of the most positive things that we could build in Dominica because we would employ many, lots of people because you need a lot of engineers, you need a lot of construction workers, you need a lot of people from various backgrounds. Now, Getting to and from Dominica is quite a challenge, but if we look at other islands, 
sorry, who have invested in their infrastructure, they have actually record numbers. Look at, for example, Antigua and Saint Lucia, record of one million tourists stay over tourists in one year. Well, that's a new record. So we're trying to catch up to everyone else within the OECS. So the challenge is for us to actually have the leadership, the political will, and the desire to actually make this project a reality. So I think we'll see what happens. Yeah, so, so you know, I, I'm going to end our conversation on a note where I look forward to to riding into Dominica, landing at the International Airport, and the captain who's announcing welcome to whatever International Airport in Dominica, that captain will be Rainstar Luke. <laughs> so so that that is something that we have to look forward to. I'm looking forward to that. Well, I think, you know, this is, you know, something that we can definitely look forward to in the future. And I think the future for Dominica and aviation, the sky is the limit. And I think we just have to be bold enough to take some risk and take some challenges and be able to have the will and, of course, the desire to actually make a change um, because the reality is it's very hard to get to and from Dominica, and I think a lot of people who would like to come as tourists or invest or have reservations about coming because it just seems to take, for example, two days to get to Dominica. It's difficult. It's very, very difficult, yeah. Um, and, of course... We think that we are the major island of the Caribbean, and we are, but there's many other places around the world that offer nature that are far easier to get to. Mm-hmm. And in terms of cost, that is also something we have to be able to look at is to reduce the cost for the traveler. And that is something that we have to really go back to the drawing board and start looking at what works in other countries. A good example would be, for example, in the Maldives, which are like the Caribbean islands. They're a group of islands in the Indian Ocean. They use seaplanes uh, to connect from one international hub to take people out to resorts that are on smaller islands. Right. So, for example, if we had this new vision for aviation Dominica and we looked at everything, we can bring new businesses. I mean, for example... We look at other islands in the Caribbean that have helicopter tours. Many tourists would love to come and look at our nature from the air. I mean, flying in an airplane over Dominica is amazing. It's probably better than Hawaii. But, of course, very few people do have that opportunity. So there's a lot of opportunities for aviation, like, for example, helicopter tours, helicopter shuttles, to give people an aerial view of Boiling Lake or to give people a view of Juan Capitan National Park or to give people a view of Juan Gableton or just a general around tour to the island from the air. Mm-hmm. That is something we've had that in the past. Unfortunately, that closed down. We should bring these again. And then if we have seaplanes, imagine if you're leaving one of the Caribbean islands and you're arriving right at the Roseau Ferry Terminal or right in Portsmouth. This is something that is not new concept. This is something that has been done around the world, for example, in the Maldives, and it's proven technology. It works. Right. But we have to be able to think outside of the box. And sometimes 
I think we need to be able to ask more questions, challenge ourselves, and do more research at what's available out there technology-wise that we can use to our benefit to enhance our lives and be able to develop our country for the future. So we will see what will happen. I mean, for example, it's unfortunate that we have many delays and we have heard many reasons why Dominique cannot have an international airport. And there are many good examples in the Caribbean of leaders who had the political will, who had the leadership, who had the vision to overcome obstacles. And a good example for the international airport would be St. Vincent and Grenadines. Right, right. St. Vincent and Grenadines is a volcanic island, just like Dominican mountainous terrain. They also have a population of 110,000 people, about 32 different islands, which include Bekwe, Mustique, Kanawan, BTT, Vincent. And when they built the international airport, which is very different from approach that we have in Dominica. For example, it was on August 5th, actually Russian on August 8th, 2005, where the Prime Minister of St. Vincent Grenadines decided that he was going to build the international airport. Fast forward three years later, we had July 13th, when we had the first rock being blasted. And then, of course, Earth Moving Works, August 13th, 2008. A project which was supposed to take three years originally, took eight years and six months to complete. So we're seeing a different style that perhaps we should emulate by looking at those challenges, looking at what diplomatic relationships we have with countries that can assist us. Cuba has also assisted in Grenada many years ago. They also right. have assisted in St. Vincent and Grenadines along with Venezuela. So they had the will to organize all of their different allies and say, hey, we would like to build an international airport. We know it's going to be challenging. We know we would have to acquire the land of 135 homes, demolish them. But they had to really do a lot for that airport in St. Vincent and Grenadines because there's no flat land, just like Dominica. Like Dominica. They right. their existing infrastructure could not cope with the future. Therefore, they had to take the risk of blasting three mountains. They had to span the runway across the river and then be able to get the terminal built by the government of Taiwan. So we're seeing a very different approach of actions and words in terms of being able to promise and deliver. Mm -hmm. Yes. I agree. I agree. But as as aspiring Dominicans, we we aspire to greater things and we hope. We hope that um, enough of us will be passionate enough about um, Dominica having its own international airport and this is a reality that will happen within our lifetimes while we're still young and vigorous enough to be able to fly in and enjoy it. So, Rinsta, this is the time that we have. I, uh, I really thank you so much for for sharing with me this time and with the audience. Um, fascinating story that you have. I, I'm going to um, post the link to the to the documentary um, celebration of flight, and I wish you all the best. As I said, I look forward to you being the captain on one of the flights that takes me into Dominica in the not-too-distant future. 
I wish you all the best. Uh, if there's anything else that you haven't mentioned that you would like to, you can do it now, or else we can just I can we can just close up and and, and really I really appreciate your time this evening. Well, certainly, thank you very much for bringing me on to talk about uh, my story and share my passion with aviation. I, and definitely, I think the future in Dominica, and of course, we are still recovering from Hurricane Maria, but I think International Airport is the future. There are so many opportunities, and I think if we have young men and young women interested in aviation careers, that would be the perfect catalyst to carry us into the future because aviation is not just being a pilot. There's so many careers like aircraft controllers and there's so many businesses. For example, you have what's known as an FBO, which is a fixed base operator. So they would provide like catering, cleaning, right, uh, private right, right. jet. Mm -hmm. it, there's so many opportunities, helicopter tours, there's aircraft mechanics that we can train young men and young women in something new. Traditionally, everyone has kind of thought of aviation as very expensive, which is true, but in order to sustain international airport, you have to have services, you have to have qualified personnel, and that's what I would like to see happen more in Dominica, more young men and young women getting involved in aviation, picking up as a career and sharing their passion to fly and be free as a bird. Awesome. <laughs> thank you. One more time, I said thank you. And all the best. I, I, I mean, there's so much that we haven't covered. Um, so I, I, I'm going to invite you back so we can continue this conversation. But in the meantime, I really appreciate your time this evening. And I wish you all the best. Thank you so much again. Thank you very much. And thank you to all your listeners. I certainly recommend everyone to go on YouTube and watch our documentary. And Please feel free to contact me on Facebook if you would like and share a comment on how that story, hopefully it will inspire you to pursue your own dreams and pursue your own bucket list of things that you would like to accomplish in life. All right. Thank you very much. Take care. All the best. All the best. So listeners, there you had it. A very interesting conversation. My guest tonight on this weekend interview was Mr. Rinstar Luke. Rinstar is originally from Dominica of um, of Kalinago heritage. Um, always interested in flying, always interested in aviation, and he had the opportunity to build an aircraft with his own hands as the assistant of a pilot named Daniel Ronstadt from from Sweden, and um, that he's been able to pursue his passion. He's now uh, a, a licensed pilot. And he's working towards getting his commercial hours, enough hours for his commercial credentials. So we'll certainly keep our eyes on him. He's um, somebody to watch. And uh, I, I wish you have a great week. Thank you so much for staying tuned. And we will do this again next week, Wednesday, where I'm going to have another interesting conversation, fascinating conversation to share with you on this week in interview. So thank you to my engineer and producer, Sam. And thank you for all you listeners who stay with me. Remember, invite five people to come to listen to listen to this, this weekend interview next week. Every one of you, I want you to bring five listeners um, with you. When I say bring them, of course, um, remind them it's eight o'clock. It's this weekend interview. Let's get let's get our audience growing so that some of the things we discuss, um, we can have a movement that can make some of those things become a reality. You're going to have a movement to put some pressure and to come with some strategies to get Dominica 
an international airport, for example. So till next week, I wish you all the best. Good night.